the, the, the host here is Jeremy Hobson. She was from another tribe. People my people used to kill, so I knew it was okay to ask for her number. And because a storm had arrived in Clarkston, and wind tore the leaves from the trees and tossed them about in the driveways of all those lamplit, colonial-style homes in the university district, where it seemed that everyone who had ever lived there had known nothing but harmony and warmth and an endless Christmas Eve. This is the Hobcast. This is the Hobcast. I'm Jeremy Hobson, and you've heard me mention at the end of each Hobcast a thank you to the two people who have been helping me with this, John J. Richardson and Andrew Haig. And Andrew, I'm putting you in front of the mic for the beginning here because this is dangerous. This is, well, we have done 14 episodes. This is episode 14 of the Hobcast. We've had. What's your favorite? Uh, I really liked uh, listening to Eric talk about the world in Beijing. Eric Hundman, who Eric Hundman. is a China scholar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that his perspective was very interesting, and because he's so buried in the culture of everything that was happening uh, in China, I thought I found a lot of that stuff very illuminating. And I think there was a lot that I also took away as a, as a military vet in, with the conversation about Afghanistan and how it is involved in the story with China as well. And it just kind of drove home how much things are overlapping and everything's connected. You are a Marine. Yes. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was very interesting about that conversation with Eric Hundman to the people who live here, as we do in Provincetown, is that a lot of them didn't even know that he was a China scholar yeah. because they've talked about other things, but not that. So... I had an experience about a week ago. I was invited to a dinner party here in Provincetown with basically 20 people I had never met before, which is kind of unusual, unusual because, yeah. you know, it's not that big of a town, especially yeah. now we're in the off season. There are, you know, several thousand people here, but yeah. there were 20 people that I had never, ever met before. I think we all kind of assume we know everyone because it's so small feeling. Right, exactly. So the reason that these 20 people were people I'd never met before is because they were members of what's called the Fine Arts Work Center. You know what that is. I, I've just, I've recently fallen deeply in love with the Fine Arts Work Center and the people that work there. So apparently it is one of the top places for not just artists, but writers to go in the country and spend several months on a fellowship uh, with other writers, but also just working on their craft in this little place at the end of the earth, because it's the very end of very tip of Cape Cod. So I spoke to many of them, but one of them in particular stood out and I thought I've got to have him on the Hobcast, which is interesting because you know, Andrew, when I was at, in public radio for many years, some of my best ideas would come from dinner parties. And this yeah. was, once again, I was like, okay. This Always is we, the places you least expect it. The places you least expect it. So Sterling Holy Whiteman is his name, and he has done some of the biggest writing fellowships in the country. He was a, He's a master of creative writing at the Iowa Writers Workshop. He did the McCrate Fiction Fellowship at the University of Wisconsin. He was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford. Now he's here uh, in Provincetown on the Fine Arts Work Center Fellowship, and he's just had a piece published in the New Yorker magazine um, that sort of relates back. It's fiction, but it relates back to his uh, upbringing and background in the Blackfeet Reservation in Northwest Montana. Sterling, Holy White Mountain, welcome to the Hobcast. Thanks for having me. So your piece in The New Yorker, and, and that is a prestigious thing all by itself to have a piece in The New Yorker. It's your first one in The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. It is about somebody from the tribe that you are from in, in Montana, the Blackfeet uh, tribe. It is fiction, however. How much of it comes from your own experience i think there's only one line in the story that's actually like completely just that is something that someone said hmm. everything else is pretty much 
like everything I write, extrapolating from my own experience, um, the lives of the people that I know and things that I'm thinking about. I think the thing that I was just, that I was really trying to get at with that story is just uh, how difficult it is to transition from, if you're from a reservation, to transition from that into college. It's something that happens more and more and more now. But when I went to, uh, when I first went to college in 96, it still wasn't that common. I think mm. my class was, uh, my high school class was probably the first one where I think most of us went to college and that was just not common at all at that time. So what, what is the, what is the sort of culture shock when you, when you go to college coming from a reservation? Uh, everything. <laughs> I tell you what, the thing that I really remember when I first got there was how many blonde people there were. <laughs> huh. I just where you know, like where I'm from, almost everyone has black hair. And I remember walking across campus when I first got there thinking like, where did all these blonde people come from? And, uh, teasing, like, you know, teasing is so, is, is just like such a, uh, an essential part of Blackfoot culture that I realized right away when I got to University of Montana that um, white people, a lot of white people have a very different relationship to teasing than we do. It's like two, <laughs> two sense of humor or two? Um, like a lot of, like I just, I ended up, because I, I didn't go, I, was, I didn't know I was going to school until like the middle of the summer. As I was like, man, I was done with high school. I'm like, I'm not going to college. Uh, it's funny to think about now because at that time you could still like have a real life if you didn't go to college. But like, I don't know if you can do that anymore doesn't seem like it to me and so I didn't know why you went to college in the first place but I got a um I unexpectedly got a, a tuition and fee waiver for like a one semester one year thing in the middle of that summer and my mom was like well you're going to school now so you know I went to school and because I was so late I ended up in an all-men's dorm it's the only it was the only dorm left that you know that that uh that was that had uh, any rooms available and uh and so I'm in there with a bunch um it was just basically me and like my uncle, which is funny to think about now, because he had gone back to school in his, he must have been in his late, early 40s at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a bunch of white guys in the storm. And uh, I realized right away that like, uh, when I would try to tease these guys, they'd get seriously offended. And huh. like some of them were like, they were like almost ready to fight immediately. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm teasing you because I like you. If I didn't like you, I wouldn't tease you. <laughs> so that was, um, that was the, probably the biggest one. For me, one of the yeah. interesting things about your piece, though, is that you know there's a there's sort of a culture shock between the main character and a white woman, but also between the main character and a woman from another tribe. Mm. Like, that's almost as different as a white woman. Mm. That was the um, that was the thing that I was uh, as far as that story is concerned. That's the thing that I'm the most proud of because I just. It's such a common uh, discussion in Indian country to, to talk about the differences between tribes, people from different tribes. But that's something that, by and large, like, I've just never really seen in, like, public, you know, like, the public discourse or conversation in, in the U.S. Is, uh, most uh, non-Indians are surprised when they start to understand, like, how people from different tribes talk about each other and, like, how different they can actually be. Because, you know, like we're, we're talking generally like, I don't remember, it's something 365 
maybe a little more reservations in the U.S. and over 500 tribes. And each one of those tribes has a distinct history. And, you know, for the tribes that still have their languages, each one has a distinct language or a distinct dialect of a language. And and geography plays such a large, huge role in like the way that those histories played out and, and the way that um, the different cultures work. And so it's really hard to make broad generalizations about Native people at the level of culture. It's just really difficult. Like, you can kind of say, well, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, uh, Plains tribes, but... You know, but even, you know, the, the, you know, the people that everybody always thinks about are like the, you know, the Lakota, but I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're a Plains tribe, like we're, we're a Plains tribe, but I would not say like when I'm around Lakota people that I like, I feel like I'm among like, yeah. And I mean, no, not, not in that way. No. To me, the thing that connects all the tribes in the U S is, is the fact that we're all under the same federal Indian policy. So, because the way that the the way that Congress works, the way the you know, the Supreme Court works, is that uh, any statute, any um, court decision, anything like that that um, is passed in relation to one tribe, is is a decision or a statute that is applied across the board. Huh. So that's why that's why court cases are so dangerous in Indian country because you can have something take place in you know North Carolina. Um, that is actually kind of specific to that place, but if it ends up going to the Supreme Court and they make a decision about it, it then that all... then applies to every tribe in the U.S. Uh-huh. Right, and uh, and it's always been that way, and so that's like that. That to me is really the thing that connects everybody is that we're all under the same policies, uh, you know, whether we like it or not. So you know, there was a big news story, um, rightfully so, that the, for the first time in U.S. history, a cabinet secretary is a Native American, mm. Deb Holland. Mm. Does that mean anything to you? If does that mean anything to you? She's not from your tribe. That's a very interesting <laughs> question. Um, I thought about it a lot. I mean, on the one hand, like, I think it's really, uh, you know, like there was just a, um, in fact, just the other day, uh, uh, a native guy who was appointed like the, um, the head of the national park system, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Like, that's pretty extraordinary. That to me is actually maybe even more important than, the than Deb Holland. Yeah. Because De- like she's, well, I, I mean, it's, it's, there's a, there's like a symbolic meaning to it. Right. Which is that, you know, there's a there's a native person in a, an extremely high position of um, authority, and in the and in her case, what uh, is to me what was significant about that is that you know historically, the Secretary of the Interior in the 1800s was actually the Secretary of War, and the Secretary of War oversaw all of the U.S.'s relationships to the tribes. So that tells you like what the the like you know original relationship of the U.S you know, between the U S and the tribes was, mm-hmm. and, and eventually like, you know, then the secretary of war becomes the secretary of the interior. And so there's something very interesting happening there where initially like that was somebody who was basically solely overseeing like the colonization and the conquest of like of the, of America. Right. right? And now we have a native person in what is that position, you know, albeit like altered. And so there's something really interesting going on there that I think is, is, um, 
a, a pretty uh, a large discussion in some ways, but like, wait, so so something really interesting that is a pretty large discussion. You're somebody who <laughs> uses words, and those are very diplomatic <laughs> terms you're using there. So it doesn't mean, mean anything to you. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, the question for me is always like, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna talk about like my, you know, what I want is I want the full restoration of sovereignty to the indigenous nations of this country. Like that's what I want. Is that something that like Deb Holland can like like that th- that's such like a because I because to me to me like all of our almost all of our problems stem from the fact that we actually can't govern ourselves. All of our problems, and you're saying all of our problems as Native people. Yeah, I'm talking about like yeah. like you know like our all of, well I shouldn't say all like obviously there are other problems I guess you can maybe correct um, over time without something like that happening with, you know, without sovereign, our sovereignty being restored. But, but the problem is, is like, you know, we, ha- okay. So for example, like we've got, um, uh, you know, we've got the issue of like, uh, these uh, native caricatures that are used as mascots. And we've got the issue of like the, you know, people wearing fake headdresses and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And like, those are things that are, um, solvable. And the, the, I think in some way or another, those are being solved right now, but let's just say like, okay, there are no, you know, there are no native mascots and no team names and that that's that's all gone. Well, we still have all these other problems that are not solved at all by and they're more fundamental. The problems of like we still can't govern ourselves on, you know, in our own homelands. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually can't enforce actual justice in our homelands, you know, because Congress quote unquote took that power away from us. So there's a whole set of crimes, for example, and this is one of the reasons that uh, crime on reservations is so complicated and difficult is because Congress l- took away our ability to legally, according to the U.S., enforce any kind of justice on criminals. Mm-hmm. So, like that to me is that to me is That's the, the crux of the matter. Yeah, too. like and then those are all those are all issues of like governance to me. The other thing that has been going on in the last year and a half, especially, uh, you know, following the murder of George Floyd, there has been kind of a revolution in this country. And it's not just about uh, black people, but I mean, this term that has now come up all over the place, BIPOC, includes indigenous. Do you think that any strides have been made in the last year and a half when it comes to the stature of indigenous people in this country? I think we're more visible. I mean, I just like there, you know, with TVs, the TV shows like you know, Reservation Dogs, and um, there's going to be more and more. We'll will be we will continue to be in media and art more and more and more. But like, I'm even uncomfortable with with the with the eye in BIPOC because because again, like the issues for the other letters in that you know in that acronym, so to speak, the issues are almost they're all issues of basically rights and representation and uh, how how people are being treated as citizens in the US and like to me that's not our issue again like to me our issue is actually we're not supposed to be part of the US but we are like that's to me is our issue and until until we're talking about that I would be I would be happy if BIPOC was leading to that conversation but it's not we're just kind of like my feeling is that we're kind of our, our major issues are still not being discussed because they're super complicated. You have to understand a lot of history to know, like, because our issues are kind of like in Congress, you know, and like in the Supreme Court. And you have to know this stuff. And most almost no one does, whether they're native or non-native. 
Uh, let me ask you about writing. Um, we mentioned that this piece that you just had in The New Yorker and your work in general is fiction. Why fiction as opposed to nonfiction? Have you done much nonfiction <laughs> writing? <laughs> I've, written a, I've written a little bit, but the only nonfiction I've written is because, um, is because people asked me to write it, you mm. know. And I'm. Um, Why are you drawn to fiction? Because I'm a liar. <laughs> <laughs> because because I, as a kid I was a, I was an incredible liar. <laughs> um, that's a uh, boy. That's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, like like part of it is that like you know I grew up reading books and um, books are like if I was to like like what is the what is the single most important like thing that happened to me in my life it's that you know my mom uh read to me and my siblings every night when we were kids i have this relationship to you know uh, books and the written word that um is very deeply ingrained in me and the main way that i access beauty basically is through words on the page i think probably most people access beauty in you know different ways but like for me Art is like, you know, art is basically how I survive. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I would do if I, if I couldn't experience art and, and, and particularly like literature, like language on the page. And, uh, you know, I read, um, I started reading on the road when I think I was 19 or 20, uh, cause one of my friends had given it to me. And within a couple days of reading that book, starting to read it, I started writing. I remember very specifically. And the difference between a writer and somebody who just loves to read books is that, you know, you have a profound experience with a book and readers just want to read more or they want to read the same book again. And writers immediately start writing. And I don't know why. There's a kind of mystery there that I, I, I'll never understand. What have you been learning from all these fellowships? Or like, give, give me something, tell me <laughs> the, something. That writing me, a book takes forever. Takes, well, you said that, you know, that, that your piece in the New Yorker took you, what, seven years to write that? Yeah, I mean, I thought about, I mean, I started thinking about it probably six, seven, eight years ago. And I would try to start it. And I, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't write it. Like, I just, I, I couldn't find, like, for me... For me, um, in order to write a story, I have to find like the, um, I have to find like the access point or like the door that opens into the story. And uh, you know, like for example, like yesterday morning, I woke up at 4:30 in the morning for some reason, and I and I started thinking, and I realized that I knew, I had finally found the way into this story that I've been thinking about probably for 15 hmm. years. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh fuck! Now I have to get up and work, and it's 4:30 in the morning. I just wanted to go back to bed, but but I but I've been waiting. I, I I've been waiting for that to find the a way into that story, and I and I I'm just lying there in the dark. And I'm like, I know how to do it now, and so I got up and started working on it. And it was the same thing with the New Yorker story. I had a I had a post-it note on my on my computer screen when I was working at Blackfeet Community College, what seven or eight years ago, and it was just the opening line of the original draft of the story. And that's all I had for years is I just had that line on a post-it note and I would look at it and I would try to write a little bit in a Word document and just nothing happened. And then, what, two two springs ago, I don't know what happened. Like, I, I was sitting down. I had to have something for my Stegner reading um, at the end of my first year. And I was like, what am I going to read? And I was sitting in front of my computer and I was like, wait a second, I know how to do it now. And I sat down and I drafted that story and like, two afternoons what was the first line 
Oh man, it's 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 overwrought. I'm embarrassed to say it out loud, but I think that I think it was. Oh, I think it was she came as fire. I left in flames. Huh. <laughs> and I and that was just it was yeah it was just written on a post-it note on my computer. What was the editorial process like um, at the New Yorker? This is pretty extensive. Yeah, for that story, it was pretty extensive. Um, I've heard it is that way for most people. Uh, I remember years ago, George Saunders, when he came to one of the programs I was in, saying, he's like, the New Yorker is the only place. And this was when he was a well-established writer at that point, and like probably the most well-known short story writer in America at that time. And, and I remember him saying, uh, the New Yorker is the only place where when they send back my story, it is completely covered in red. It's like, no one else does that to me, but the New Yorker does it to me all every time. Do they do it to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was, it was just a, you know, a word, a track, the track changes was just like, the entire right column was just comment, comment, comment all the way down and there's red everywhere. You and know? do you feel like it made it better, the editing? I do. It's an interesting question because there's a version of the story in the back of my mind that is closer to the original draft than the one that ended up in the New Yorker. And I think if I were to go back to that first draft, would I actually be compelled to like finish a different version of it? Because the original version was a lot uh, uh, looser. It was just, it was, it, and, the, and the sentences were longer. There was less punctuation. What happened is that there were a lot of commas added and there were a lot of that's added. And by the time that process was over with, I, when we were done and I looked at my story and I was like, oh, now it's a New Yorker story. But the thing that really made it that was that. It was the commas and the that's and all of a sudden They everything. want to slow down the reader. It does. It, it slowed the story down. And my friend said the same thing when he read it. He's like, wow, the story reads a lot slower than it did before. And I think, I think there's a benefit to that, you know. And I also think there's a benefit to a story that reads fast. I think they just land differently. What was the thing you think that broke the logjam at 4.30 in the morning? <laughs> well, okay, so <laughs> so here, it was a conversation I had the night before about UFOs, believe it or not. <laughs> it was because there's an element of this story, at least right now, that involves like either a UFO or, or aliens, I'm not sure, probably, or the just mention of them. It's something, it's, it's a story that takes place on a train ride, like on the Amtrak. I started thinking about like, man, what if there, what if I wrote a story on a train that has a UFO in it? And that was it. That was the only thought I had for years and years. And then the other night I was talking with a friend, we were talking about UFOs. And then I woke up, you know, like at 4.30 and like whatever it was about having that conversation just... Was know. it somebody that was in your that's in your fellowship? No, no, no. just an old okay. friend of mine from Iowa. But that does bring me to another question I want to ask you, which is, what is it like for you as a, as a creative, as a writer, to be around other writers? Do you feed off each other? Do you and and artists for that matter? Uh, it's way different now than it was for me. Like what, fifteen years ago when I was in when I first went to grad school. When I was younger and I was not as good a writer and I was struggling with a lot of writing problems that I've solved at this point. And I, and I knew at that time I was very far away from like being the kind of writer that I wanted to be. It was harder to be around writers because the intensity of the, um, of, of the workshop situation and all those writers being around you all the time. Like when I left, I was like, I am never going back into the writing world again. 
and it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with any individual person it just it was so much and there were so many conversations about writing and it was like I just needed a break you know I just needed a break it was like it approached you know those situations approach like a kind of uh, maybe artistic claustrophobia or something but but like at this point now that I've actually published and and I feel way more like I'm the kind of writer that I want to be it's way easier for me to be around writers now than it was then it's it feels more like we can just be friends and we don't have to talk about writing and you know uh many years ago I interviewed this Indian uh, architect who was in his 90s and had just won the Pritzker Prize, which is a big, huge architecture prize. And he had studied decades ago with like Gaudi and other really big uh, architects. And I said, what did you talk about with them? And he said, oh, well, the interesting thing was we never talked about architecture. We just talked about life and philosophy and like that's that is at its core what I was doing as an architect was making spaces where people could live their lives. And so that was the useful thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as it wasn't that we were speaking about our craft, but that we were just yep. interacting with each other. That's right. That's right. I mean, like at the Stegner, we almost never talked about writing. What we talked about was like basically like pop culture, like trash. <laughs> it was like <laughs> and that was like that was like the best thing. Like that was what we wanted to do. It was just like talk about whatever was going on in you know in pop culture at that time that is sterling holy white mountain uh thank you so much it's been great meeting you Mm. and thank you for coming on the hobcast yeah thank you appreciate it and by the way people can uh find your uh, article it's called featherweight Mm. uh in the new yorker if you just google featherweight sterling you'll find it sterling thank you thanks Wow. Well, we have gotten through now 14 episodes of the Hobcast. We are coming up on the holidays, Andrew Haig. Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, mm-hmm. Christmas, New Year's. Kwanzaa. Yeah. So what I'm going to say right now is because I have been, you know, making promises about the next Hobcast. I think I'm not going to make any promise right now over the next month. However, I already know I'm going to be seeing somebody in the coming weeks that I really want to get on the Hobcast. So if that happens, great. I'm going to call you up and I'll we're going to do another by. one. But... Listeners of the Hobcast, don't blame me if we take a little bit of a break here. You know, there have been 14 episodes. I say that could be season one. You have to put a season on. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Season one. Like Bill Maher has gone on break for the rest of the year. Saturday Night Live, I'm sure, is going to take a break. Exactly. Everybody's taking a break now. We'll see. There might be a surprise holiday edition of the Hobcast, but if not. Christmas special. Exactly. (laughs) The Christmas special. We'll get the Rockettes. Um, But if not, thank you so much for listening to these episodes. And let me know what you think of them on Twitter at Jeremy Hobson. Rate it, uh, share it, and let's see what happens next with the Hobcast. Maybe it'll be entering a new phase in season two. Uh, I'm Jeremy Hobson. Thank you so much for listening.